You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Steve Coleman, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series called The Master. All right, we are in the Gospel of John, the Master series. Today we're looking at John chapter 5. The latter part of it, we had uh, Justin talk about the miracle that occurs in the first half of the chapter last week, uh, the healing of the man who was lame, who was laying by the pool of Bethsaida. And uh, some really good stuff came out of that uh, that I've been thinking about all week. So thank you, Justin. It was an excellent presentation on that. Um, in John 5, we're going we're, we're gonna to learn some things um, about the Pharisees. Pharisee. What do we think when we hear that name? If it's used nowadays, usually we think about somebody who calling someone a hypocrite or somebody that's self-righteous, someone whose uh, opinions and judgments on things aren't the same as their own ability to behave. You know, they got negative press in the first century too. At best, we think of them as those dour rule-keeping people. They had a lot of energy for following the law of God. But their problem was, as leaders, they put burdens on people that God never intended. They led them away from the intent and heart of God. And you know, Jesus has a lot of strong words for them. You probably remember some of them. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind, blind fools full of greed and self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs. The picture he was drawing was of a tomb that's clean on the outside but full of decay on the inside. He called them wicked and called them snakes. Why did he do that? Have you ever wondered why Jesus was so condemning of them and didn't seem to reason with them more? Please don't tell me. I have to throw away my God loves Pharisees bumper sticker. (laughs) Well, we're going to see that in this chapter, they got Christ's attention. And he communicated some things they needed to consider. And we'll take a look at what we can take away from the text, too. So, if if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 5, 16. And there we're going to find some of these answers. You know, as we work through this text... Realize it's not written for the 21st century. No Bible text was written to have the direct readers be folks in the 21st century. But we're, kind of, we're a mix of Jews and Gentiles, people that believe on Jesus. What's written in this text? What Jesus talks about, he's talking to a group of theologians. He's talking to Jewish, Orthodox, conservative theologians who were experts at the law and experts at figuring out what it is we had to do or the people in that day had to do to meet the requirements of the law. Much like the Orthodox Jews today, they knew their law. So it's kind of a technical discussion. We're going to glide through it and uh, pick up what we can from it. But Jesus definitely lays out a definitive case for his deity and the basis of salvation. Well, last week, as I said, Justin talked to us about the healing at the pool of Bethesda. 
And this man, walking with his mat, is confronted by the Pharisees and challenged. You're not obeying the Sabbath. As a result of that, it says the Pharisees persecuted Jesus because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, that's an interesting way to say it. There's only this one incident. But if you look at the put all the Gospels side by side, and the way a lot of the experts see it, this event in John happened around the same time as a number of other events that occur in the Gospels. One was Jesus was challenged because his disciples were eating grain on the Sabbath, walking through a field, picking some grains as they went for their lunch. That was permitted by the law. But the Pharisees thought their conclusion was not permitted on the Sabbath. The other one was Jesus healed a man who had a defect with his hand. It's called a shriveled hand or a withered hand. It was not functional. And Jesus healed it, made it completely whole on the Sabbath. So it's probably this set or a set like them of things. And then, In any event, the Pharisees saw a pattern. And they, they challenged Jesus. It says they persecuted him. Then we read, it says... Uh, Jesus answered. Now, his answer is straightforward and a little different than his answer was in the number of other times that he was challenged about working on the Sabbath. He used some answers which were all very good, clever answers that David ate the showbread on the Sabbath in an Old Testament historical event and was was considered perfectly good by God. The priests break the Sabbath all the time. That's their busiest day and yet they're considered innocent. Uh, The Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is something that's supposed to help humans, not make life difficult. And then he even challenged the Pharisees and said, which of you, if your sheep or donkey fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't go ahead and roll up your sleeves and go pull it out, even though that would be considered work? This time... The straightforward response really raises the stakes in the conversation. He said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Well, he called God his father, and and that we all recognize that there's this relationship he's establishing with God, the fact that he was deity. But there's more to it than that in the ears of these theologians. You know, work, the significance of that. Justin talked last week about the rules that the the Pharisees had for the Sabbath. There is the commandment about the Sabbath in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees came up with all kinds of ways so that people could understand what work meant. They had 39 categories of rules to help understand what you could and couldn't do. And he used an example last week of the fact that you, you were only supposed to go, but so far, so many steps or a certain distance from your home. Well, what's the answer when people aren't at their home and they're like staying somewhere? The Pharisee says, oh, okay, that's easy. Their possessions are considered their home for that period of time. So they can only go a certain number of steps. And Justin talked about how um, people would then say, okay, well, get some friends together. You, you go a little while with a bunch of your clothes, say, here, you stand here with my shirt, and you get to go another 
length that's permissible. Let's have another friend stay there. Here, you hold my, this extra pair of pants because I've got to go over there and do my business. I'll come back. Thanks for helping me out. Uh, and, and those sorts of things. That's what the Pharisees loved that. They were policy people. They said, yeah, we've got to meet this requirement and you know, we'll, we'll lay this all out and then you will be righteous too. Well, Jesus pushed a button here that we don't notice with our 20th century ears. There was an issue among the debates in the Pharisees, a question about, does God break the Sabbath? Well, they tore into this, and they came up. It, it, was, it was contested, but a lot of them, a lot of Pharisees came up with, okay, we restrict the amount you can lift on the Sabbath. We have a rule. You can't lift anything over your shoulder. You can only lift it up as high as your shoulder. So you can do light work. That's what they were trying to define. And you can't carry something from this house to that house. Now, that would have to be considered work. But if you carried something from one room to another within your own house, okay. So what they said was, you know what? God doesn't break the Sabbath because he just does light work around his house, his house being the universe. Yeah, his house is the universe and he just does the light stuff, you know, just keeps the globe spinning, and, you know, and then he gets back to work on Sunday. Uh, and uh, that, was, that was sort of, okay, good. God doesn't break the Sabbath. He wouldn't. That's his law. And Jesus came along and says with this one statement, no, you got it all wrong. God's labors do not cease. That's what he's saying here. My father is always at, at his work. To this very day, and I too am working. Another, another identification with God, but he really rankled them. Jesus was not afraid to come. Straightforward, bold, kind of um, not in the bad way, but kind of in your face. It's like, let me up the ante here. You're challenging me on the Sabbath. God works, and I work because God works. And it says in the next verse that they then, uh, the Pharisees decided to kill him because he blasphemed. He was making himself equal to God. And so not only for breaking the Sabbath, but also for blaspheming. Extremely bold response by Christ with serious implications. Well, he goes on, and we'll run through these quickly. I just want you to get the sense of them. But he went on and, and, and explained. On down in verse 19, he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Listen to what he's saying. Everything the Father does, I do. And everything I do is what the Father does. Who he is, Jesus said, I am. Jesus and God share the same nature. There's nothing I do that the Father isn't doing. And there's nothing the Father does that I don't do. They heard this theologically. Profound implication. Works. Verse, uh, it's the next verse down. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he shows him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Putting a finger on the Son, 
doing the works of God and challenging the Pharisees. Study my works and see. You will see the works of God. That's how John the Baptist was convinced. If you remember, he sent some folks to Jesus saying, are you the one? And Jesus said, go back and tell him. The lame walk, the blind see, good news is preached to the poor, and so on. And they, they went back, and that was sufficient for John. He recognized it. Pharisees, they're holding out. Power, the next verse. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Okay, claiming power over life and death. Nobody can do that but God. Supernatural power that is God's alone, Jesus says, that's in my control. Authority. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, a key theological point for studiers of the Old Testament. And finally, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You know, some churches, we don't, some churches, they lay out the schedule for Sunday morning, they have a, a thing called call to worship. Well, this is the Pharisees' call to worship. When you see honor, think worship. At this point, the Pharisees should, because they understood the implications of all these statements. They should have said, okay, yes, now we get it. You are the Son of God. We worship. But here he stood, Jesus stood, a self-proclaimed rabbi from Galilee, and was expecting them to bow down and worship him. Exactly what they understood and didn't understand, we don't know 100% for sure. But we know that uh, in spite of this evidence, they didn't change. Well, Jesus then shifts gears a little bit. And he goes and starts talking about the importance, the critical nature of this issue he is talking about with them. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death until life. There it is, clear, plain, salvation message to the Pharisees. Please come, get this life. It matches the whole theme of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20, John writes, um, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's saying, there's a lot of things I could have written about, but I chose the things to write about so that you would understand this message. And you know, we've heard it already. Starting in chapter 1, John announced Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist announced Jesus in his ministry. Uh, Jesus announced himself to the disciples. We had the miracle of the water to wine, and it says there the disciples put their faith in him. 
and then he clears the temple. In chapter 3, we had the gospel given to Nicodemus, and later in that chapter, John the Baptist then is uh, uh, giving his testimony about Jesus. In chapter 4, we have the Samaritan woman. Again, the gospel was the subject there. We have this text here. In chapter 6, we'll have Jesus announcing he's the bread of life and a long discussion about how that connects, what that means in terms of the gospel. Chapter 7 and 8, it just goes on and on, chapter by chapter. John keeps pushing his purpose for the book. Okay, so now we know what's at stake. Jesus has talked about, I am God, and all the theological ways that they could not dispute. He talked about how, what's at stake here. And now he turns to the law side of it. He said, okay, I get it. Maybe you don't believe my testimony alone. Now, it doesn't matter that Andrew, early in the Gospel of John, spent apparently one day with Jesus and came to a conclusion, went to his brother, said, he's the Messiah. Or that Philip did the same, found Nathanael and said, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law and whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus, having explained the truth with crystal clarity, now he goes ahead and offers legal evidence to prove his case. So we have the witness box. Who's the first witness? John the Baptist, he calls on. Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, you can't, it's not evidence in a court of law. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know his testimonies about me is true. What did John say? 134, I have seen and I testify, this is the Son of God. Jesus tells the Pharisees as well, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Apparently, during part of John the Baptist's ministry, the Pharisees were like, yeah, he's preaching repentance, good stuff. And Jesus is saying, that very guy, look what he says. How about the next witness? Jesus says, the works that I did, he's mentioned them before, But he said, and he repeats himself, yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these, the renewed challenge to examine his works. Who's the third witness? Well, he calls on God the Father. The Father who sent me himself testified concerning me. Now, it's not recorded in Luke what happened at John's baptism at Jesus' baptism by John. But it certainly was a story that was known. John does reference in the book of John, John the Baptist, the fact that, yes, he saw the dove come down and light on Jesus, which was that same time, had the same significance, only in symbolic form. But over in Luke, we have God's own statement. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What's the fourth witness? As if you needed more, but what is the fourth? We're not proving this case beyond a reasonable doubt. We're proving this case with no shadow of a doubt. Well, it's the Scriptures. The Scriptures testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's he's 
bringing this argument to a close. You use the Scripture because you, by going through them, you think that you possess life. But I'm telling you, these scriptures are the ones that testify about me. That's the message you should get from them. And they all knew. They all knew Daniel's writings where he talked about the Son of Man being the one sent from God. They knew all the scriptures about the Messiah. Well, as a final, final punch through, you know, they loved the law. Moses was their guy. And Jesus says, you know, in the end, it's not going to be me that accuses you. Your accuser is Moses. I'm going to appoint a special prosecutor in the end. And he's the guy that's going to be looking at you and saying, he says, but do not think I will accuse you before my father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The language is strong, but it's strong because it's urging a decision. This is Jesus talking theology and law with the experts on theology and law in the first century and saying, get it, understand this. This is who I am. This is what's at stake. Show me how I failed to make my case. You know, Jesus made it crystal clear to these leaders that he is God. He walks with them through... uh, Five different ways in which they can understand that to be true, that he is God. He talked about the stakes that were, uh, that were involved. He makes his case by bringing up four witnesses that speak to his identity. He leaves the leaders no alternative. We don't have a recording of their side of the conversation. I think it's because this, John wasn't so much recording a real conversation as a a set of things that Jesus said, perhaps multiple times, uh, to the Pharisees early in his ministry. You don't have to believe that, but just the way it stayed in the beginning. After that time, they began to persecute him. Jesus answered. Well, then they tried to kill him. Jesus answered. So there isn't a give-and-take conversation right here in the section. But no matter if it's multiple times or this once, there was nothing... To be said, they don't answer. They don't have a retort. They don't say, "Uh, four witnesses isn't quite enough. Because they legally, it was way more than enough. They don't say, yeah, I heard you say you're like God, but what about this aspect or this area or this scripture? There's nothing to be said. There's no option for them of managing this from a PR standpoint. Jesus would not be controlled. He came as God. Their option was, okay, we get it. You're God. Man, I don't know how we missed it. I don't know why we didn't buckle before now. You are the Messiah. Or to just make their choice. The magnitude of the moment, God reaching out to the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and the awful decision they came to 
are the reason I believe Jesus is then sounds so condemning of them in other passages. God really does love the Pharisees. But they made their choice. They made their choice with full open eyes. They knew who it was. There's no, no excuse of ignorance here at all. Okay, what's in this for us, though? Kind of heady theological debate. Well, you know, we have new life in us if we've accepted Jesus. But we know from experience, even if we've accepted Jesus, it doesn't mean that we don't have some characteristics that we shouldn't have in our lives. It doesn't mean we can't feel a little or speak a little bit in judgmental terms. You know, we can have the spirit of the Pharisees. The disciples were told, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven to Jews was a symbol of, you know, ruining what was happening, ruining the batch, poisoning the, the batch. And Jesus told his disciples, beware of that. You've got to be really careful. We have to be careful of it, creeping in our lives. From a practical standpoint, what does that look like? It means when our lives get to be more about us and not about God. There are a lot of ways to talk about it. Does God rule in my life? Have I surrendered my life to God? Um, I think so. But let me give you maybe a way to break it down and ask some questions that might help. If we imagine our lives, and I'm going to break this down in three ways. If the first question we ask is not, oh, is my life surrendered? But if we ask the question, does God have my attention? I think that's a good place to start. It is for me. I've found it in my life. Is my life characterized? How do I know if God has my attention? Do I, am I interested in finding out what the Bible says that might help me understand God better or do the right thing? Uh, do I, well, first you have to understand it. This is a Justin thing, 24 times 7, 24 7 worship. Is the, is the avenue between me and God in my mind, is that open all the time? Am I praising Him? when there are things I can praise him for? Do I find myself, when I have some spare time, sitting in traffic, uh, sing some of these worship songs? Uh, you know, that sort of, ad, it's an attitude. It's not a doing thing. Are we thinking in terms of God during our day? Same with prayer. Not formal prayer, but informal prayer in a conversation-like way. We talk to God during the day. I mean, there's whole days that go by, and I forget to do that. And I wake up, oh my gosh, I've never done that. I haven't done it in a couple of days. And you pray, and you, you get connected back. God loves us. And, uh, and you, you get back to it. It's not an easy habit to maintain. It's easy to do sometimes, not always easy to maintain. But that's the point. We have to keep after it. The second area, so if God has our attention, if we sort of feel, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm connected with God during the week, that's happening. Well, then, the second area I would say to look at is this, our decisions. 
Do I invite God into my decision-making? Is he invited in? Is he in there? And for me, uh, the areas that come up are finances. Does my budgeting, is, is God sort of in my mind? Am I praying to God as I'm saying, how, what, how should we allocate our money? Where, where should it go? Uh, significant purchases, do I stop and pray about those? Recognizing that God's given me resources, gifts. Uh, he expects me to uh, use them as if I am a custodian of them, not as if I own them. Uh, a light hand on it. Time is up there. That is hugely valuable to me. And as I talk to people, uh, it seems like it's valuable to them too. How is God involved in my decisions about how I spend my time? And for me, uh, people is one. Because by personality, uh, I don't tend to gravitate toward people. I'm a little happier taking two more steps back and living life in my head and uh, enjoying solitude. So for me, decisions about people, about extending myself out to people, has to be a... uh, a conscious decision. I have to tell myself, yeah, that's what I need to do. Am I inviting God into those kinds of decisions too? Then I think, at least for me, it's been helpful then. I can then talk about my life, and there's some other factors there. But I I can't really be comfortable about my answers. Am I inviting God into my decisions? If I'm uncomfortable about my, does God have my attention? He has to have our attention first. And it's, it's hard to talk, for me to talk about my life. Is my life surrendered to God if I'm not bringing him into decisions along the way? But if I'm hitting on all cylinders there with attention, if I'm bringing God into my decisions, then I can start asking the life questions. Do I trust God as I look at the circumstances that are coming at me? Do I trust that he will work in those, that he will work in me to transform me through those. It's only then that I can take the attitudes that, that, that uh, James suggests. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. Why would I count that joy? Well, it's if I trust him. Um, representation. Uh, that means, is my mentality that wherever I go, whoever I'm talking to, whatever I'm involved with, I'm a representative in that area for those people of God. The things I say, are they words of grace? Am I thinking about them from a spiritual standpoint? Not that we push in with um, the four spiritual laws, something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about, am, am I, with this group of people thinking about me, or am I thinking about them through God's eyes? Uh, and then stewardship. That same idea. Um, I believe it's one of the reasons why we've gone to that word to describe folks that bear the responsibility of the government of New Hope Chapel. Do I have that attitude about my things, my life, my car, my house, my laptop? What else is important? If I had an iBook, my iBook. They're not mine. They're God's, and I'm a steward of them. He's given them to me to use, but my 
they're ultimately his. Okay, so um, does he have my life? Do I trust him with my circumstances? Has he overflowed into every area of my life? Am I operating with a stewardship mentality? Those are questions I find helpful. And the better I pursue these, the less apt I am to find myself caught with a, a Pharisee attitude or find myself caught in words that I'm saying that aren't helpful to people that are maybe sharper or uh, more judgmental. So let's take a hard look at ourselves from time to time. Do our lives reflect the freedom of our great salvation, the freedom from self, the freedom from having to pursue self-interest to worship and love God and serve him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great and wonderful salvation. We thank you that you have given us a freedom in you and a freedom from sin. We're grateful to you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.